Welcome to The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Ken Lawrence, and me, Paul Johnson, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. We unpack our identity as white men by having honest, open, and sometimes difficult and uncomfortable conversations about being a white man, where we come from, our place in today's society, and roles to play moving forward as allies, leaders, and individuals who care about creating an equitable society for all. All right, Paul, here we are in our fifth installment of working through our identity process. Up until this point, we have explored the racial history that has led to our current racial ecosystem in the United States. And last episode, we wrapped up the racial history part by connecting the dots to the ecosystem that we see today. Yeah, last episode, we discussed policies and practices that began at the end of Reconstruction, such as sharecropping, convict leasing, voter suppression tactics, propaganda, the great migration of blacks from the south to city centers across the country, and redlining that followed. We then discussed how all of that has resulted in the racial disparities that we see today, like overcrowded and underfunded neighborhoods and schools, disparities in economic opportunity, wealth, and crime rates. So my biggest takeaway is, yeah, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw gaslighting in the mix here because that as I was listening back to episode four, that word just kept coming to mind. And I feel like it's going to be like Merriam-Webster's like word of the year. I've heard that word more this year within the last 365 days than I have my entire life. Yeah. And, you know, clearly it's not just gaslighting at a political level, but, you know, I remember getting gaslighted all the time, like past jobs and employers but i want to mention the definition just to kind of help help it for anyone who doesn't know what it is it's a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or a group covertly sows seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or group making them question their own memory perception or judgment often evoking in them cognitive dissonance and other changes including low self-esteem so fancy way of saying like it's a way of really making you think that you're crazy like, you know you're seeing something or, or experiencing something, but somebody through propaganda, through just over and over, like, telling you that you're not actually experiencing those things or flipping the, the narrative makes you believe that, oh, maybe I'm the one who's actually crazy and I'm seeing things that aren't actually there. So there's a couple of things that we talked about in episode four that felt like or seemed like gaslighting. And it really came down to, like, how white people would, you know, throughout history and even today white people would essentially set up we talked about this set up black people for failure and then when black people did fail white people would turn around and be like see see you are a failure your race is a failure so you know a couple examples that come to mind is redlining and it's a perfect mm-hmm. example of, of gaslighting you know like we talked about how redlining led to poverty which leads to crime mm-hmm. right and so you have black folks experiencing this this uh, oppression of poverty because they've been redlined and then they start to you know they they commit crimes because that's what people do when you're in poverty you talked about that last time but that's not just an american thing that's across the world thing yep but then there's this gaslighting of like you know people saying that's just what black that's a cultural thing for black people that's a that's a black quote-unquote community thing that's a ghetto thing right Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people might actually start thinking, oh, yeah, maybe that is ingrained in us. Maybe I am. That's in his identity things like 
Maybe I am a criminal or I'm born, you know, meant to be a criminal, you know, or meant to either end up dead or, or in jail, you know? I've, and it must be that way. You right, know, like right. It, yeah. And it's my, it's my doing, not, not, there isn't a connection to like actually white people put me in this position. Right. It's like, you know, so, so, and then at the, the, the other gaslighting example I thought of was the whole process of arresting people. So, you know, like you watch all the time that these, these, some law enforcement officers escalate the situation and anytime you escalate the situation, which is essentially raising the stress levels of everyone, it's a very natural reaction for someone to resist arrest, to run, to defend themselves. Right. And, and so it's actually, you know, these white, you know, not always white, sometimes it's black, but you know, a a white institution, you know, influenced culture of, of law enforcement that essentially forces black folks into this position where they have to defend themselves to fight back through through escalation of fight or flight um, but then they get arrested for it they get an extra charge for it and it's like well only if you if you only would have complied if you only would have you know just said what the officer you know, did what the officer said and yes sir no sir sort of mm-hmm. thing you know and so it's just like gaslighting of like oh it's actually your own individual fault your own shortcomings as a human being that you didn't respond the way you should have in that situation but you look at you talk to any experts with with escalation they'll analyze that situation be like that officer escalated the situation Mm -hmm. with his actions or her actions that's what resulted in person responding that way you know and that goes all the way back to it you know i don't think we've talked about this podcast but that law about how if a slave ran away and a slave owner caught them and and if the slave resisted and then died in that struggle the slave owner would be exonerated um i don't remember the actual law but i remember hearing about that is that a part of the fugitive slave act maybe yeah yeah yeah. so you know so anyway you know to me that just felt like gaslighting it's this manipulation of like you know like black people are saying we are experiencing this oppression and this trauma but yet like you know we were put in a situation you know we were we were we were forced into a lose-lose situation and it, you know, and it just it just kind of creates this like, am I crazy or this low self esteem, cognitive dissonance? Like, I I'm, I swear to God, like, it shouldn't be this way. But like, all the messengers are telling me yeah. like, I'm inferior, right? And I actually this is a this is my own doing. It's my own shortcomings of my of personal responsibility. And I'm sure it doesn't help white people's complete incapacity to recognize these things or talk about these things from every level. And yeah. so, for generations. To even have a conversation and white people can't even do that and would yeah. deny it. And yeah, I could see that sitting sitting in and just being like, oh, right. I guess that it must just be me. You know, kind of that constant lingering thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, a perfect example there is like people would say to me, well, redlining doesn't exist anymore. So that doesn't affect people today. Yeah. Like that's gaslighting. Yes, it does affect people today. Right. right? And same thing with like, oh, the fugitive slave law, that that's off the books. That's way long off the book, off the books. Like you know but but yet that's still you know the, the the spirit of it if you will still continues today is trauma a part of gaslighting like the definition or i don't, I don't know it can you know, lead like... it can lead to trauma i think over time that that cognitive dissonance or or you can you can experience trauma and then someone can gaslight you yeah to make okay. you think that you really what happened wasn't that bad yeah right or just get over it or or it didn't really happen that way yeah right you're, you're overthinking it or like your memories you know because then you start thinking like oh maybe that didn't happen right you know like if someone experienced a rape or something like that you could be 
manipulated into thinking that like you caused it right which happens all the time with women right like well if you want to warn that that short skirt right like then this wouldn't have happened like now you're like oh is it my fault that i got raped right i mean it's it's the same thing with with um with racial oppression you know you know i don't know if it causes trauma necessarily i think it can over time but it 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 definitely causes this like like kind of this this like am i crazy you know like you know right right. um and then maybe it turns into like i am crazy you Mm -hmm. know um so yeah, that's a really good takeaway. Yeah, I like that link. I like it. I mean, <laughs> that's I, a good one. That's a, my takeaways would be tough to follow that. That was it. Well, but, but, sorry, before you get into it, there's two things I want to say. There, there are two ignorant things I said mm, <laughs> last sure, episode. Sure. I don't know if we should have a segment on that too, but I wanted to correct a few like ignorant or stupid things I said. I think part of what I've experienced, at least being white and male, is that you say stupid things all the time and ignorant mm. things all the time. And I think it's, it's upon us to catch it ourselves and correct it ourselves. Mm. So I think as a caveat moving forward, like we're probably going to, we're going to say stupid stuff all the time. At mm. least I know I will. Yeah. Um, so I just want to take an opportunity to like correct a couple dumb things I said. One thing I remember saying is I mentioned something about like, we were talking about reconstruction and I mentioned something about like the idea of integrating black people back into into society. Like that's completely false. They never were integrated mm, ever sure. yeah. at, at any point. Right. Yeah. Like that, that implies that at one point they were integrated in society. They never were. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just want to correct that and say like, that's completely false. Sure. Right. And even to this day, they're not fully integrated. I don't even know what integrated necessarily means or right. looks like, but I know for a fact they weren't like quote unquote integrated. So that, and then I also mentioned like black culture. I mean, there is a distinction between race and culture, right? Like if you're both of a black race, right? You're part of the same race. The same, the same isn't true about culture. Like there is no such thing as a black culture. There's no such thing as a white culture. You could have a black person grow up in a, in a white, you know, neighborhood and they would be a part of that culture. And then their cultural identity would look and feel differently than if for, for folks in a all black neighborhood right those two different cultures yet they're part of the same race Mm -hmm. so there is no like one monolithic black culture right and there's no one monolithic white white Mm -hmm. culture so that was that was a that was a yeah a false statement on my part that hopefully hopefully didn't confuse people but that i think that should be something we we break down in the future like what's the difference between race and culture i really like i think that would be an important thing to to lay down as a foundation and i like that you i I agree we should include that if we said something it's like well i don't know about that and then we want to revisit it or say you know this didn't come off right i like that and that's interesting too we should talk about that more because when you said that i'm like yeah you're right there is no such thing as black culture or white culture but until you kind of just said that i kind of thought there was yeah you know like because whites made it so impossible for black people to integrate into however you want to define that culture or society they looked inwards and they created their own norms and their own Mm -hmm. like in their neighborhoods and things that would be different than how white folks would live because of what white folks did Mm -hmm. so it's yeah how do you define that or think of that because it isn't a race thing but Mm -hmm. a lot of it was created because of race issues that white people created Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah i mean yeah that's interesting yeah it's an area I don't even want to pretend like I right. know yeah, what I'm talking either. about, yeah. but but it would be interesting to dive into. But I mean, culture is it's behaviors. Right. It's like behaviors and values and norms, mm-hmm. right? Like whereas race is biological. Well, also it's not biological. We know that due to the human genome right. project, race does not exist as a as a concept. But for the for the the purposes of our conversation, 
when we talk about race, you can't change it. Whereas yeah. you can, your, your culture can shift or you can maybe live a part of one culture. Like when you True. change jobs, you go from one organizational culture to another type of organizational culture and, and there's, there's differences. So in but, a few episodes from now, we're going to talk about our own culture and like, as we're starting to unpack yeah. our identities. So we should maybe include that in there. I think that's a good idea. That was a great takeaway. Look at that. Take that was a long takeaway. That was a I good feel like segue I, conversation from your takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just like, I listened to That's it good. earlier today and I just like things just things started like things it. started firing in my brain. So thanks for thanks for uh, indulging. I love it. My takeaway is kind of unique for me because, you know, I'm such a context guy where I, I need context of the past to inform the today. And you're mm. a futuristic guy. Mm-hmm. But I had like this futuristic movement mm. as my takeaway where when we were going through our first four episodes the way that we did. And we connected all of those dots to racial disparities that exist today. It creates a level setting understanding of not only why things are the way they are, but also gives clarity to what needs to be done to fix it moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I just had this point of clarity where if you don't do this initial first step work of grasping the history and you are someone who wants to be an ally for racial equity, then you won't know the most efficient and impactful ways to go about it. So Mm -hmm. I think... You brought up redlining. That's a great example. Like you need to know that something like redlining happened and existed and helped to create the disparities that we see geographically and, and leads to crime rates and everything that we talked about. Because if you want to do something to fix the system, you have to know that that happened, right? Mm-hmm. Or else like your efforts moving forward, if you're brainstorming with other allies and champions, like is it really needed? Is that the root cause that we want to address? And it just had, that was a big takeaway of listening to that, of how we brought it up today. I mean, like, hey, we need to, if we're going to do something today, we better do it right and, and address the root causes of these things. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you like think about a machine, an assembly line, like if you find a, a hitch or a bug in, in an assembly line, like, you know, down the line and you don't fix it, it's still going to keep, messing up stuff happening down the line you know like mm-hmm. you, if you don't address the root cause it's just still gonna it's still gonna live live there and it's still gonna affect things right i think one of the the hitches for us is that we maybe this is a white exceptionalism thing but we look back at people who did red line and we'd be like oh well i'd never do that mm-hmm. like i oh, i i'm smarter and more enlightened than that mm-hmm. you know so I think we really need to check our ego and be like, well, yeah, maybe we wouldn't do something like redlining, but we do something like it, mm-hmm. right? That we, in our well-intentioned way, would be like, well, this is not redlining, so you know, it's better, mm-hmm. but it still would produce these unintended consequences that could be just as damaging as something like redlining. Yeah, or looking at how we said we're reconstructing reconstruction, and then we're like kind of in a reconstructing period. Same mm-hmm. thing, like. We may not have done what they did during Reconstruction Mm -hmm. to that extent, but you can do things that have similar effects. And so like understanding that, like, yeah, we would never have a convict leasing or sharecropping system. But if you understand all of those systems, you can see the types of like effects and Mm -hmm. it can help you see it in today's context. Yeah. Great takeaways. And it's a good segue now because we're shifting our focus a little bit kind of for the first time in this podcast, where the first four we started talking about the history of race, and now we're gonna shift that a little bit. So the focus on this podcast, of course, is identity work for those who identify as white men, as you and I do. So the focus is not white people in general. 
So we would be remiss if we didn't explore the man part of white man. And we have talked at length about how it is white men in these positions of power and influence throughout history. Well, why wasn't it white women in those positions? Why weren't white women included at all? Why, even with the deep-rooted racial hierarchy and institutional racism that we have discussed, were black men given the right to vote before white women? And with that, how has it built on society's definition of what masculinity and femininity entails, and how has that become toxic? So there are a lot of questions when considering that man part. You know, I was initially thinking that this would be one episode, but quickly realized that there's just too much here. So we're going to break it into two episodes for two distinctly important themes. The first, which we'll cover in this episode, is the history part. So, Paul, I get to hold on to that history piece for a bit longer. We're not totally out of the history weeds yet. And then the second theme, which we'll cover next episode, has to do with the idea of masculinity, how it along with femininity, were socially constructed, and the impact that it has today. So, of course, throughout the entirety of this podcast, we are making generalizations. You know, there are men and women who do not fit in the constructed masculinity and femininity mold, plus the many people who identify as neither male nor female or both. And we are addressing it from the lens of cisgender males. And if you don't know exactly what that means, we're examining that in depth next episode. And maybe I could just jump in to like address the word toxic because I know like that's a really strong word Mm -hmm. and that might just make some people recoil. And there's also a lot of, you know, just unhelpful ways that people talk about toxic masculinity. But I think you and I can both agree it just means harmful. Yes. and, And both harmful to ourselves, those who identify as cisgender male and well, any gender, right? Any gender expression, how it can be harmful. Mm -hmm. I think we'll talk about how it can be harmful across the whole gender spectrum. But yeah, as you said, just for the purposes of our podcast and what we're talking, we're going to, we're going to talk about in a binary way, right? Men and women. But as you mentioned, that's not how the world works. It's not in, not a binary thing. Exactly. And it's interesting that you say that too, because Initially, when I saw toxic masculinity, I thought unconsciously, maybe a little defensively, like it was how men are toxic to everyone else. And then when Mm -hmm. I was looking into this, it's like, no, it is as toxic for men Mm -hmm. as any on the gender spectrum. And I'm excited to talk about this with you because I think there are a lot of really... There were a lot of eye-opening things for me in looking into this. Because I'm an extra toxic male. That, <laughs> yes. That's why you had me on this to, podcast. I've been meaning to get to, <laughs> to talk to you about this stuff, Paul. <laughs> All right, so let's dive into this. It's advantageous that we have already dissected in depth how white men have perpetuated and held onto power through the race lens because the way that race and gender have been manifested are very similar and intertwined more than I actually thought. All right, so you know with me, Paul, I say it all the time. I need context to explain why things are the way they are from the very beginning. So with this, my mind immediately goes to the initial creation of gender roles. Like why and how did it happen in the first place? Why, for example, didn't women end up in the position of hoarding all the power? So I once again turned to John Bewin's Seen on Radio podcast series for the origin story. I mentioned his Seen White season in episode one, Well, he also has a men season. And my favorite part of both of these seasons is that I think he must think the same way I do. He needs to know context from the very beginning. So I've really enjoyed his first couple episodes for for both of those seasons. 
But one of his guests is Mel Connor, who is the author of Women After All, and his arguments I found really fascinating. So you'll recall from our discussion on the creation of race way back in our first episode that one of the hugely impactful components was when and where society made the shift from hunter-gatherers to settling down to farm, roughly 10,000 years ago, which resulted in forming villages and organized societies and how the northern climate allowed northern humans, who had whiter skin, to make the shift earlier. So with regard to sex, the shift from hunter-gatherers was also a key event. As hunter-gatherers for thousands of years, as early homo sapiens, used what we think as masculine traits such as strength to exert dominance or take charge. The most successful male homo sapiens were those who could fight and hunt. And in those times, the most desirable traits would likely have included aggression, ruthlessness, and physical strength. And this was not just the men. There is evidence that both men and women played similar roles. Essentially, it was an all-hands-on-deck-to-survive type of situation. So when humans make the shift from hunter-gatherers to farming, it's not an all-out-everyone-for-survival anymore. There are now all of these specialized devotions like farmers, warriors, priests, merchants, nobles. And those long-held traits of survival are all of a sudden not necessary in every aspect of life. So another hugely important part of this shift is that for the first time, the idea of public and private spaces shows up. So for the first time in the history, in addition to these public positions, there are individual and family private spaces. The idea of the household and that being someone's property and that being private. So what happens is that men seize all of the public positions and delegate women to the private spaces. And the public spaces turn out to have the most influence on societies, hence the most power. And this is really where patriarchy is first formed. So Paul, my immediate next question to this is why was it men and not women who seized all of these public positions? Why didn't women delegate men to the private space? Or at the very least, why was there even a distinction based on sex? Why wasn't it shared? So we may never have the perfect answer here, but there are theories that many experts adhere to. Mel Connor's research and argument I find really interesting on why it was men that seized the public positions of power and influence. And that has to do with the reproduction process. So creating and nurturing life is a huge deal, and men are essentially left out of it. So Mel Connor calls this concept womb envy. So to feel an importance themselves, men seized the public power. Women will take care of that whole making human beings and nurturing them thing. I'll be providing and protecting everyone and setting the ground rules and whatnot. Mm. And you know why this really struck me, Paul? Because it's happened at a time in my life where I can see how this is the case. Because my wife and I just had our first baby. We had a daughter five months ago. Yeah, like watching a woman grow a human being inside of them and then give birth and nurture this child for the first few months particularly is like, it's a miracle. I mean, it's an incredible thing. And as the man, you're just kind of like there. Like, I mean, you play an important role. You're there to support and you're helpful. But 
I could, I, like, when I first heard this and read about it, I, I was like, you know, I could see how men 10,000 years ago were like, you know, kind of gem- had this womb envy. And were like, I'm important too, uh, you know, and... And, and then what we'll talk later about kind of their characteristics that led to them seizing it. But it's just kind of funny how this point in my life, I was like, wow, I, I can see that. Oh, 100%. And, and, you know, my partner and I are currently going to have a baby in a couple months. And so I'm right in the middle of what you what you went through a few months ago. And I, I completely agree. I feel like I'm on the sidelines watching. Yeah, right. And I feel kind of helpless, you know, like I do what I can to try to understand what she's going through and I try to help. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I, I just will have no idea what she's going through. Right. Um, and also, yeah, completely feeling like I have at least not no part to play, but a very small, minimal. I'm, I'm just sort of like a like a cheerleader, you know, yeah, right. which, is, which is needed. And, you know, I'm it's not important. trying to down, like, right. downplay that, but. Yeah, I just, I feel, and also just like completely out of the loop, just completely like, you know, and I can read or I can read about stuff, but at the end of the day, I'm just like, I, I don't, I can't, I don't know what you're going through. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I totally get that too. You know, my, what I keep going back to when you're talking about even going back to hunter gatherers, right? Like there are traits like strength, dominance, taking charge were quote unquote masculine traits. You know, those who are stronger could fight better and, and kill more prey right like sure let's that's true right like and at the same time you have women who would go through childbirth which (laughs) as i'm sure you experience like is not an easy feat right like that takes strength especially probably ten thousand years ago can you imagine right like yeah and and then and then raising the child too right so so my question is how did it happen where the strength of like fighting and killing things outweigh the strength of of bearing and and raising a child like mm-hmm. that's the kind of like how did it how did it play out that way where it could have played out the other way where the strength that was shown in in having a child and 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 carrying a child was was higher than you know what i'm trying to get yeah, at yeah, like for sure how did I, that happen? Yeah. So let me continue because yeah. I think this next part might answer some of those questions. Because another important thing that goes along with this is that Mel Connor again points out the two main differences between men and women that have huge consequences and that are consistent in all cultures of the world. So the first is the tendency towards violence. And the violence we're talking about here is specifically the tendency to hurt other people physically. That's a huge difference between men and women. And then the second thing is exploitative sexuality. So you look at 99% of rapes in the world are committed by men. You look at sexual abuse, sexual harassment, with the Me Too movement now, how it's all coming out. Vast majority of these are men perpetrating on women. So those are two huge differences between men and women. And the combination of having tendencies towards violence, dominance, sexual exploitation, and then combining that with womb envy, wanting to feel consequential and powerful, that is how and why men seized these positions of power and suppressed women into private sphere. So it's like, it's this womb envy, but then it's also just these traits that men have that have made them be so aggressive in seizing that power. And you know what's interesting is you think that you'd re- read this Mel Connor's work and be like, oh, I bet he thinks that, you know, naturally men and women are just equal, you know. But actually he doesn't. He thinks that women are more evolved. And he makes this case because 
women have evolved past these primal mm. survival instincts where violence and aggression and ruthlessness are so valued. They they have evolved past that, where, whereas men haven't. And it's kind of like this mm. sick, twisted catch-22 that, like, because they have evolved quicker, it's almost like men like haven't grown up. And so because of that, have taken all this power and then just suppressed women. Yeah. Boy, this is this is uh <laughs> this is opening some big some big stuff for me. I mean, it's really hard to wrap my head around this. The womb envy thing, I just keep coming back to that. Cause like wouldn't if you have womb envy, wouldn't you wanna be and this is maybe answering my question, wouldn't you wanna be very involved in the the birth the conception and child rearing and birth process and to my question i just asked yes that's why men are making decisions on behalf of women but also i think about like this this sort of i don't know if it's in the realm of toxic masculinity but this like the the men who aren't involved in their kids lives like and are just like you know i think about men who you know show up late to the birth of their children because they had a meeting you know like wouldn't you want to be involved on every step of the process wouldn't you like be obsessed with the whole process if you had this woman be and maybe that's true and maybe it's just this misplaced resentment or envy that to other things and like you know i don't know i yeah. i'm processing it as we go but i'm just wondering why men have if they're so if they want to be part of the child rearing and, and raising kids and that part of evolution which is at the end of the day big reason why we're on earth is to reproduce why are they absent? Why are they just checking out of their kids' lives? And maybe it's that, that insecurity, then then they try to find that in work or other things. I don't know. I'm yeah. just kind of... Yeah. I mean, it would be totally like you and I hypothesizing, which we know yeah. we white That's men hypothesize. <laughs> uh, but it's I, I think that it's sad, too, because... So on this podcast, the co-host for the men's season is Celeste Headley. And she mm. identifies as a black woman. And she just over and over kept saying, and like her biggest takeaway was like, you know, it's just such a waste of time and effort. Like all the good ideas, all the progress that could have been made if women were involved, you know, from the beginning on like some kind of an equal standard versus men trying to suppress women forever. And and if men were involved, you know, as saw it as a partnership, like, hey, I'm involved in every step of this birth process, however I can. And if men saw it that way, I think that we'd, of course, we'd be living in just a completely different mm-hmm. world. It's just, it's interesting too. There is a, an endless debate that you can have with gender on nature versus nurture. Like how much of this is nature? How much mm-hmm. of it is, is nurture? The, the experts have their you know theories but no one really really knows at the end of the day how much is nature versus nurture i find that question extremely interesting how much is it because men have different chromosomes and have more testosterone in these traits because it's across the world that men have taken these positions of power versus how much of it is nurture which is like you know, the culture in which we have created and we've seen and we have, you know, we're going to unpack this next episode a lot, like what we think the idea of being a man is and somehow, however, that why that started and then men just act the way they do and take on the roles that they do. And 
maybe it was this idea of being a man. I think it's starting to change finally. But like being a man now is like, no, you're with your partner every step of the way. Mm-hmm. And you're with your kids every step of the way. Whereas even in the 1950s, it wasn't really like being a man was, wasn't showing that vulnerability. It was more just like, I'm going to make the money. I'm going to mm-hmm. work. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to seem, I'm going to spend time with the guys. I don't want to seem like I'm spending too much time with my family. It's like, mm-hmm. is that, is there something nature versus nurture? I mean, I don't know the mm. answer to that question any more than like what we've kind of laid out here, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I think, I feel like I, I love the nature versus nurture discussion too. I feel like I am biased more towards nurture. I think both is true. I mean, people have been arguing about this forever and no one's ever like come out and be like, okay, you're right. It's nurture. Like, yeah. no, it'll always be both. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't help but think like there's what's happening in men is this is like deep insecurity. You know, and I think this is where some of that toxic masculinity where it's harmful is that is that we are we are insecure um, and maybe it's the, the origin is this womb envy. But yeah. we are we are we have insecurity that we don't talk about or admit because vulnerability is not a quote unquote masculine trait. Right. Like that'll never be considered or up until this point has not been considered a masculine trait. Like you act tough, you get over things, you 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 know you're you're aggressive you're not weak right because because think about evolution it makes sense like if you show weakness it's gonna get you killed right right so again this is probably to your point of how men have not evolved like we're still living in like hunter-gatherer days to think that like any sign of weakness will get us killed that's not true anymore right and in fact like showing weakness weakness and vulnerability will actually will actually be very beneficial and actually help us help us evolve quicker and faster right like but we haven't caught up to that yet but but we do a lot of damage and harm because we act on our insecurities and i I can't help but like then make that connection to race right like i hear all the time about how white people act in racist ways out of insecurity like at the end of the day it's really like i I feel very insecure about who i am and my even my race you know like the idea to be like to call yourself the supreme race is a quintessential way of saying like of like an insecurity thing yeah right to like you have grandiose thoughts yeah. right of like i'm the best race like anytime someone like builds themselves up like that is a clear sign that they have major insecurities yeah like you know we have to make up science to prove that this yeah. is right yeah <laughs> yeah exactly instead of just admitting like we all have faults we all you know like it, it's like we gotta you know you got to make up a bunch of stuff to to prove something that isn't even true to, to like almost lie to ourselves it's almost like a it's a lying to ourselves over lying to other people to, oh totally you know? lying to ourselves is like one of the number one things evolution does like evolution isn't yeah. just physical evolution is mm-hmm. mental which is crazy to me yeah. to think about for us to think that we're special is a trait of evolution like in reality we're not mm. special but evolution makes you think that you are individually in mm. this world a special person, at least in your own world. And mm-hmm. you know, you could have a discussion about that. Like, yeah, I am special to other people. But in like the grand scheme of things, you're not mm. as special as evolution makes you think right. you are. That's something I've been working on. I'm mm. like telling myself, like, hey, you're not that special, dude. Like, <laughs> like play your part. And it's helped me. It's made me a happier person, yeah. which is kind of interesting. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my mom t- says I'm special, <laughs> so it's got to be true, right? That's true. Yeah. Right? Even to true. this day. That's evolution. She, still puts, telling, she yeah. still puts notes in my lunches that say you're special. <laughs> but no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I and I've catch myself all the time thinking I'm better than or bigger than I actually am. 
Yeah. Like I, 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 I even, you know, I, I don't mean to say this, I'd separate myself from other men, but like, you know, I've gone through some process of being vulnerable and checking my insecurities, but I still have had these grandiose feelings and thoughts about who I am, Yes, which is out of a, a major insecurity. And I think it's just a lifelong process to, to constantly check that. Yeah. You and I have that in common. I like share, I, I was reading this book that you recommended to me, which is why Buddhism is true. Mm. And it, like, changed my life, essentially, by the way. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'll but, take credit for that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Talk about insecurities. Yeah. I'll take credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> that someone so, else changed your life. Yeah, thank you. So I and I, I told a couple people this. Like, my wife and one of my friends, I was like, here's a big takeaway that I have. Like, I'm not that special. That's a thing that evolution is. And both of them were like, I've never once thought I'm that special. I'm like, am I just a terrible person? So I'm glad to hear that you think that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. You know, yeah, I, I think it, and it, you know, it goes back to, you know, the, the intersection of race too. Like we have, as white men, we have been, I don't want to say granted, but we've been conditioned and socialized to think we we are at the top of the food chain, if you will. Like we are the cream of the crop. Yeah. And we we internalize that, right? Just as if people of color and women internalize that they are at the bottom. Yeah. They're inferior. Yeah. Right. So so we have to reckon with the same sort of process that we, you know, that people of color and women go through of like, no, you are actually you are greater than you think you are. Dealing with imposter syndrome. I don't know. What's the opposite of imposter syndrome? Because I feel like that's what white men go through. Is it it's gaslighting? Like, I was going to say, what's the opposite may, of gaslighting? Yeah, because, I don't know. I because don't know. it's like the opposite of gaslighting yeah. for people of color, isn't it? It's like, yeah. it's like when I was a kind of rambunctious middle schooler, people being like, no, like you have a lot of talent. You have like a lot of this mm-hmm. and that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, you know what? It, that must be true, I guess. People keep telling yep. me that. And I like, I can see I can do whatever I want. And like, it helped me much. I was a late bloomer. I matured into who I am, etc. Yep. But like, if it's the opposite, it's gaslighting what you talked yeah. about, right? Yeah. It's like people being like, gosh, I, I guess I can't do that. Right. Or I guess I, I must not be feeling that. It's like the opposite. Mm-hmm. We've been conditioned to the opposite of the way yeah. women, people of color have as white men. You, I, we can look anywhere we want. Mm-hmm. And we can see white men. We can see ourselves doing anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and we have the time to figure it out. And we have society telling us mm. every day that we can do whatever we want. If I was a kid of color and I was like a class clown and all this stuff, would I be where I am today? Mm-hmm. Or would other people be giving me other messages that was like, oh, I guess, yeah, I'm not that special. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Yeah. It's wild. No, I mean, that is, yeah. Like, literally, I'm just like realizing this now. Me too. I mean, like, That it's, was a big epiphany for yeah, me. Yeah, like... I mean, that is just 100% true. And it happens all the time where, you know, like an example is I'll read a book and I'll be like, I could teach a class on that now. Yeah. After just reading a stupid book. Like I get that like cocky and overconfident that I can do anything that I'd be like, now that I've com- completed this book, I'm an expert on it. Yeah. Like this is, it's, it's just BS and it's, and it's, it's lying, it's lying to myself, you know, mm-hmm. to like, because the, the idea of admitting that. I have a long way to go. I don't, yeah, I guess I don't know what the opposite is, but you know, I think it's just more, more than anything else, this being conditioned to believe I can do anything, anything is possible. Right. And having complete confidence in that, which is obviously a great thing, but also it's delusional. Yeah. Right. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I feel like I want to keep talking about this, but we have (laughs) to move on because we'll get back to it. Um, especially next episode when we talk about masculinity a lot. But let's bring this up to speed. So we kind of talked about the roots of 
the differences of gender roles and the hierarchy that existed. So much like race that we talked about, men have spread this gender hierarchy and have done everything in their power to uphold it as, as time has gone on. And, you know, a big one that you and I have mentioned is men pulled from the Bible, you know, saying, see, men are rightful bosses of women. The Bible says so. And you remember, I, I just mentioned scientific racism, right? Remember we talked about that where they showed like different skull size and like, see, white people are smarter. They did that with gender. They did this false scientific studies showing differences in skeletons, women having wider hips and were more certain to do certain positions naturally. So men have tried to uphold this gender hierarchy, much like we saw with the racial hierarchy. And with that, same with race, it came over to the United States. All right, so the gender hierarchy is in the United States when we start this country. And as we begin the country and go through the 1800s, much like race, women understood the power of the vote, of representation, of being a prominent player in that public space. And like people of color, they were excluded from all of those things. So you'll remember the lead up to the civil war that we discussed and the extreme race tensions that existed and the abolitionist movement. Well, women played a prominent role in that movement, as well as other movements, religious, moral reform, temperance. Women were the leaders of the temperance movers, which were anti-alcohol. So women were becoming more and more politically active. And with that, they began to scoff at the socially constructed idea of what made a true woman. You know, pious, a submissive wife, concerned only with the home and family. You know, that whole private space. So women started fighting for the idea that American women were autonomous individuals who deserved their own political identities. So the women's suffrage, that is women's right to vote, really picks up during this time. You have very influential women suffragists such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, for example. All right, so Paul, we already kind of talked how gender and race is similar in many ways. This is where it gets interestingly intertwined with race in our history in the United States. So I remember you wondering during our Reconstruction episode when the 15th Amendment was passed, granting the rights for all men to vote, including freed slaves, how white women felt about that. Well, not well, it turns out. You know, Many women suffragists refused to support the 15th Amendment unless women were included. There were many women who even allied with racist Southerners in their opposition to the 15th Amendment. So those fighting for the black vote didn't want to include white women because it would be harder to pass and they didn't want it to take away from the fight for black rights. White women, on the other hand, wanted to distance their fight for voting rights from the question of race. And then there are black women suffragists who are kind of stuck in the middle. So they're experiencing discrimination from white women suffragists as well. And black women suffragists such as Sojourner Truth, Frances Harper, Ida B. Wells, they were forced to create their own groups. So I just want to just repeat what you said because I think this highlights how much I think we underestimate misogyny in our country. Like you said, those fighting for the black vote didn't want to include white women because it would be harder to pass. Yeah. Like that that speaks volumes. I mean, this is white women. They are a part of, quote unquote, the superior race. Mm -hmm. But yet, because they were women, that was enough to make it difficult for uh, the vote to pass. I mean, that really speaks volumes about the depth of misogyny and sexism. Yes, you're exactly (laughs) right. Wow. Like, and the reasoning that it was harder to pass is, you know, you may have 
some white men who were for the black vote. And then you may have had some white men mm. who were for the mm. white women vote. But like combining the oh. two was just beyond, you know, fathom for a lot of people. So if you combine yeah. the two, it wouldn't have passed. You're so right. It just speaks yeah. to the the unbelievable level of white like white men. This is why we're doing this podcast. Of like yeah. white men specifically are always in these positions, like the ones who are deciding and saying yeah. yes or no. And you like you can't combine the two. That would be just Well yeah, just the idea of like you can't share too much power at once. Like there's almost this like threshold. Yes. You know, of, of like we gotta just dole out power in little bits and pieces along the line. Or like we won't do it until the resistance is too strong and then finally we'll give in. But yeah, it seems like there's this this threshold in our minds of like there's only so much power we can give out at one time because I, I don't know if it's like a, a tactic to be like we don't want to get people too optimistic, you know, like let's give something out to one group, but like not the other because that'll make everyone who's marginalized think like, oh, hey, free for all. We all get power now. Yeah. So white men are like, nope, just a little bit here and then. Yep. Yeah, it's it's really in man, yeah, just to to have that level of power. It's all about upholding that power. With that, you know, the sad part is what finally made the 19th Amendment ratify in 1920. By the way, this People is when are still alive. The 19th Amendment was ratified granting the right of women to vote. Yes, this was 100 years ago. That is just crazy to me. I'll never think that that's not crazy. But one of the things that made that finally pass is that there were many white men who wanted to uphold white supremacy and they started to see the women's vote as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Because we talked about in depth last episode voter suppression tactics, Mm -hmm. how they held black people, all people of color, from voting Well, white people running elections and the polling booths, they would allow white women to vote. And they could still prevent black people from voting, people of color from voting. So the white vote would increase dramatically. That that was one of the major things that finally passed the 19th Amendment. And it's like, man, is there like no good... Like, you know, like the things that have passed, it's like, are there no good intentions? You know, there's always like a side thing as to how this could actually benefit me. I thought that was a really big, especially for our pot of unpacking as white men, where we're really looking at white men specifically. I don't know. It's just that intersectionality here is just powerful to me. Yeah. There's a really good takeaway, though, that we white men who we identify with, who, you know, throughout history erred on the side of self-interest. Even even when they did something like abolish slavery or grant the right to vote, like you said, there's elements of like, at least there's still something. We're not going to do it until we figure out a way for there's still something in it for us. Mm Right. And I just think that's a great takeaway as white men moving forward to be like, that is our tendency. I mean, I don't I can't make an argument that we quote unquote inherit that. Right. But it is our history, you know, and I think that's that that's a, a cautionary tale for us that like that is our bias is to act on things that are in our best our, our self interest. Mm-hmm. And that to create a new, better identity, if you will, of white men is to start to do things that are in the complete in the interest of other people. Yeah, right, right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Even after this 19th Amendment is passed, 
Native American, Asian American, Latinx, black suffragists, they still had to fight for their own enfranchisement long afterwards with all of these voting suppression tactics in place. And the 19th Amendment did not address the racial terrorism that prevented them from voting until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So you talk about recent. (laughs) So yeah, you see where race and gender, they're very similar in many ways, and then you see how they hurt each other. And I think it is important for us white men to think about that. The only reason that tension existed here in the first place is because both groups were being suppressed, and both groups are trying to fight for their own rights. We talked about race here, but we want to focus on the gender hierarchy, regardless of race, and how that prevented women from certain positions and still kept them in that private world as much as possible for as long as possible. It does not take a long time to find how those disparities are still very prevalent today. Like, here's some quick facts for you. Of the CEOs running the Fortune 500 companies currently in 2020, There are 37 women of the 500 top companies. That's 7.4% of the CEOs. In the most recent Census Bureau data from 2018, women of all races earned on average just 82 cents for every $1 earned by men of all races. And then in representation, you know, in 2020 of the 535 members of the United States Congress, 127 are women. That's 23.7%. So it does not take some kind of large, well-funded study to see how these impacts are still severely felt today. All right, so there, Paul, we provided a good history and background as to the disparities and differences we see in sex and gender. But there's still much to discuss. In the next episode, we're going to continue to talk about masculinity and femininity and how that continues to affect our society. And also you and I and unpacking that in our own journeys, wrestling with that. Yeah, I think it's important to, I know we say unpack a lot. (laughs) We're doing a lot of unpacking. Lots of unpacking. But yeah, I think it's really important to look at what it means to be a man and that there's, you know, how we're being socialized to be a man and what are those stereotypes and how does that influence how we, how we think, how we act. And then, you know, eventually down the line, you know, how does that intersect with, with how we do anti-racist work? But it, it's first, you know, important to think about what are the sort of parameters or the, what is the box that we're sort of forced into to be a man and how you and I, in a lot of ways, feel pressured to fit in that box, but also how we actively you know, resist being put into that, that box and just our own, you know, struggles with that, which I think a lot of men out there deal with all the time. Yeah, I think we just never really talk about it. We, which is also like a stereotypical male thing. Like, let's not talk totally. about what we're struggling with, you know. Um, but I think we all have these moments of like wanting to give, not give into. That's the wrong phrase, but like act upon what might be seen as feminine things. But we suppress that because we, you know, we don't want to be seen as less than as a male. So. Yeah, I I just think it's really important to talk through it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to dissecting that more next episode. You know, in this episode too, if there's anything just to take away, I think there's a lot of similarities to why we unpacked race. When you look at why there are efforts for more women CEOs or more women in leadership positions or more women to be elected to positions, you can start, like 1920, they were granted the right to vote. That was the beginning of them starting to really get representation. It's just, it's so lagged and we need more of that. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. 
please follow us on Twitter at The Modern White Man for updates on new episodes, and please feel free to shoot us a note with questions or thoughts for future episodes. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.